couple times, Galen doused himself in these big industrial jars of pudding. This is Champagne is also a band podcast. One songwriter, one song. I'm Sven, your host for a journey into the music of Champaign-Urbana. Recorded in the Blue Box studio with a songwriter from the Champaign-Urbana music scene, past or present. Champagne is also a band podcast is proud to be a part of the Champagne Showers podcast network. Welcome to Champagne is also a band podcast. Today I have Rob Errol, and you may know Rob Errol from such bands as Ticks, Marry Me, June and the Exit Wounds, Belva Plain, Shotgun Wedding, and of course the band that we're going to be talking about today, Dick Justice. So, Rob, welcome to the show today. Well, thank you, Sven. I am delighted to be here. So, today we're going to be listening to your song. 9 out of 10, off of the Lasso Your Heart EP, which, uh, refresh my memory, when was this released? It was released in December of 1993. Mud Records. I, I, I almost want to say that this is probably the oldest song that we're going to be discussing today. Most people are always looking for their most recent tune to talk about. So, I'm kind of excited. Let's see where this this goes. So, without further ado, let's listen to the song.
Welcome back. So, Rob, my first and favorite question to always ask is, what came first? Was it the music or was it the lyrics? It was the music. And I have very specific memories about the writing of this song. I think we wrote this in early 93. We had been a band for a little over a year. And when we first started, Jim Camp, who played guitar primarily, I played bass primarily, we would each bring songs to the band and they would pretty much be fully formed. And if I brought in a song, I would play guitar on it and Jim would play bass. And then if Jim brought in something, so we had a lot of switching going on in the early days of, you know, me playing guitar on some stuff, Jim playing guitar on some stuff. But nine out of 10 was the first time that we really sat down and we wrote a song as a group. And it really kind of formulated our presence as the power trio that we ended up being with me on bass, Jim on guitar. Galen Gandolfi on drums. If it started off with the music, was it, and and you're primarily a bass player, mm-hmm. was it that initial descending bass line that started it uh, off, or was, was there you something would, you else? You would think so, yeah, but no, it was an afternoon practice. We were just kind of goofing around. I remember we were at a house the gym rented. It was a pink house north of Springfield, south of University, maybe off Goodwin, probably not there any longer (laughs) but his housemates were gone we were set up in the living room and he was kind of noodling around with that opening guitar line and with the delay going around and i kind of fell in and we were playing around we liked what we heard felt really good it came together very quickly jim and i were both big kiss fans still are and i found a way to kind of fit in on the chorus kind of heavily borrowed from Paul Stanley's solo album in 1978 for what ended up being the chorus. A song, I think it was called Love in Chains. If you hear Love in Chains, you'll hear kind of an homage in 9 out of 10 to that song on, on our chorus. But it all kind of fell together very nicely, but we didn't have any lyrics. And then a few days later, Galen came to me and he goes... We got it. Jim's fucking brilliant. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, of course. Yeah, what? Uh, we, uh, tell me something. What, what's going on? Galen was dating a wonderful gal at the time, and they were, you know, typical, you know, things. They were kind of hitting a little rough spot. They're sitting there. Galen's visiting with Jim in Jim's station wagon, and you know, just talking about how you know things are great. You know, it's like like nine out of ten things are great, but there's that one bit. And, and Jim just kind of summarized everything and said, dude, if you got nine out of 10 things clicking with somebody, you're doing pretty fucking good. Uh-huh. And, and it just, it fit the rhythm of this song we had written so well. So we just repeated that over and over and over again. <laughs> I almost wanted to make a joke as part of the songwriting genius to this song is that every, every 10 measures, you make a mistake. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, no, I mean, I, yeah, mm-hmm. something. It was that original guitar, mm-hmm. echoey kind of thing. Right. And then you added the bass over the top of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Just as we're kind of noodling around and kind of feeling each other out. And, and then the chorus came around or like i'm curious like where that that gritty gritty part kind of came about <laughs> well that was that was just kind of the our collective influence Yeah, you know, we all brought different things to our music you know i grew up in arcola very small rural community very yeah. much into you know 
the classic rock, you know, listening to, you know, WLS out of Chicago was really my lifeline and where I learned about a lot of, you know, bands. Galen lived outside of Chicago in a little town called Marseilles. He had older mm. brothers that would clue him into things. Jim lived closer to Chicago in a suburb of Chicago. Also had older siblings, but was more tapped into that Chicago punk rock. So we all brought our own influences into the group. We had kind of a shared knowledge of Cheap Trick and the Cars and Gary Newman and some harder stuff. And at that time, you know, in, in 92, 93, you know, you, you had to click on the distortion pedal. It had to be the gnarliest distortion that you could right. find at some point. And usually that came from very cheap equipment because that's all we could afford. <laughs> right. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so... I'm kind of curious. It's like right after the first chorus, there's kind of a constant hum, but not in like a mechanical way. It's just this, yeah, this yeah. like, do you know what the combination of the, the pedals were? Or is it is it just a... I don't. When we recorded it, we recorded it in Chicago with Jim's brother, Paul. Paul's a phenomenal guitar player. He had been in a band called Busker Soundcheck in Chicago. They did a lot of stuff, just were a great, great band. And he recorded us in the coach house that he lived in. And we were spread out over three floors. I think Galen and I had a vision to where we could see. Galen was set up in the kitchen. I was in the living room and we're tracking it live. Jim was upstairs with the guitar and we got the basic track done. I remember taking a nap. We, we recorded through the night. It was like we had one night we could get these two songs done. So we did Part of Your Problem and 9 Out of 10. And I fell asleep. And when I woke up, Jim was working his crazy magic with the pedals. And huh. there were several things going on there. But yeah, it was, it was a feedback and a delay that he was manually manipulating live okay. to, to tape. Now, I was trying to picture that, especially if you were to play this live. I bet yeah. that feedback didn't really happen. <laughs> or, di or did oh, it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Jim Jim had a looping box that he could. Oh, okay. Jim, Jim was great and still is great at manipulating the sound. The last time we played was in 2008 at a reunion show and, you know, went really well. But, you know, even 14 years after we had originally been together, he was still very skilled at and that was uh, kind of our strength is, you know, I started as a guitar player and then switched over to bass. And so I would kind of carry the melody line in a lot of our, a lot of our songs and lock in with Galen as the drummer. And then that would free Jim up to just kind of huh. play around. And a lot of times during our shows, he'd be on his knees in front of his pedals and having stuff looping going on and feedback going on and, and uh, different, different effects firing off yeah i i definitely associate that down on your knees yeah. messing with the pedals and and knobs and i i know other bands have done that before but it does seem like that's such an early mid 90s kind of thing <laughs> and and even into you know even into the 2000s but it's interesting that that kind of got picked up all at about the same time and mm -hmm. i don't know if was pedal technology better at that time or <laughs> you know because i i keep thinking about what was the technology for a looper pedal or, or anything mm -hmm. like that at the time you know it i, I yeah I mean, it I was assume. A, i think it was a a boss dd3 that you could set i think maybe up to 15 20 seconds and lock it in i guess my brain I, I think of looper pedals as such a new fangled <laughs> 2000 aught kind sure. of thing. 
but yeah, I guess I I could say that yeah, I've seen. Mm-hmm. I mean, even in the the late '80s would have been the, the boss DD3s, right? DD3s. Yeah, I mean, we heard about the recording of the song, and actually, that was going to be one of my questions. Mm-hmm. But I'm just curious about how did the layers come come about, and and by layers, I mean in terms of you know, you've got the v- verse, the chorus the verse chorus and then there's the breakdown mm-hmm. of the the counting up to nine and then <laughs> a guitar solo right in the middle and i'm just curious about some of the choices that happened when did the breakdown get put into that or was that mm-hmm. was that like we can't just keep verse chorus versing <laughs> all the way through i'm sure it was something something along those lines of you know there there needs to be something nothing we ever did was really conventional and just from lack of formal training and just you know kind of really playing off the chemistry of the three of us that a lot of our songs including nine out of ten would just kind of here's where we landed and here's what we're going with once we had a form that we were comfortable playing live i don't remember ever going back and revisiting something and saying you know i've been thinking we should tweak this or we should tweak that it was just this is it (laughs) i do remember the kind of the build-up to nine i do remember that was a conscious decision just kind of that menacing build-up, you know, and, it, and it's so simple. You, know, you count to nine. The the message of this song seems to be a little bit of both sides, right? Like mm-hmm. you have the nine nine out of ten. That's that's great. That's <laughs> you're doing pretty fucking good. Yeah. But I would say, like the second verse, it's almost like the she said, she said. I I feel like. That was the tenth, the tenth piece that they they were they were not not connecting on. It seems like. Maybe the trick is that both sides of the partnership have to agree that 9 out of 10 isn't bad. It sounds like that the other party in this relationship was not satisfied with only 9 out of 10, right? I get this mix of like, were you making an argument of like, yeah, we're not doing that bad, but it's also like, yeah, she doesn't think we're doing all that well. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't really speak to that. I was not part of the conversation. The lyrics worked. I think that was as I understood it. Those were the arguments that Galen was questioning when Jim came back with, like, dude, come on, 9 out of 10. Right. Yeah. Has he since then learned to talk cool philosophy? Or, <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, out the wazoo. <laughs> <laughs> you recorded it live in the, did you say Coach House? Yeah. Or, okay, Coach mm-hmm. House. You said that two of you were on the first floor and then someone was on the second floor. Was this at a tri-level or, or were yeah, you yeah. able? Oh, okay. Yeah. Because I was like, how do you, I, I figure at least eye contact would have been necessary, <laughs> not just not just hearing each other, but. Yeah, the coach house was a smaller home, three levels behind a home in Chicago. Paul Camp lived in this coach house and I was set up in the entryway using the bass amp from Busker Soundcheck, this custom bass amp, and playing my Rickenbacker. And I could see right down the hallway to where Galen was set up in the kitchen. We could see each other. And that was key for the two of us to be able to lock in because Jim could go off and do whatever right he needed to do and so he was upstairs with the mixing board on the third level and he was doing the vocals as well or who was who was uh, doing the like vocals? a scratch scratch oh okay scratch gotcha. vocals and then the vocals were done uh, okay done later okay was this a spaghetti mess of cables everywhere oh, yeah. or oh. okay okay because i'm just trying to picture how many oh yeah it's you know, weaving miles through a, a living of cable. space and <laughs> 
is that typical of how you've recorded mm-hmm. throughout the history? Okay. Yeah. Nowadays is it's com- completely different. Right. Different ball game, but yeah. especially with digital. And so this would have been to tape, right? Reel to reel. It was reel to reel, and then we transferred it to ADAT. A newer technology at the time. Which is so funny because it's like most people would just kill to be able to record to to tape yeah, rather yeah. than moving it to eight. <laughs> you still release this on seven inch. Yeah. And so, I mean, it, it's funny because I'm thinking at about that time, if you already transferred it to ADAT, it would have been probably the easiest choice to just record those to CDs. <laughs> that is true. You know, but there there was the... The prestige of we wanted to be on Mud Records or 12-inch records, which was the Poster Children's label. There was that cachet of having a 7-inch. Really, in 93, local bands had started doing some CD work. You know, even though turntables were on their way out then, um, thankfully they've, they've come back. But CDs were not... That, that, was, that was a whole other focus that was not you know that was not anything that that we were looking at you know we we wanted that piece of vinyl you know and then shortly thereafter it's like yeah you know mud mud put out i think we were the last one to make it onto the mud puddle playoffs which was kind of a 17 track cd sampler of songs their their first 17 seven inches put it Got out on it. a disc you know and then bands started coming out with you know full-length albums on digital on cd and went from there sorry how left field this seems but i feel like there's a different approach to writing knowing that it's going to be a full length versus knowing that you're going to be doing an ep mm-hmm. or, or or a seven inch release I, and i'm curious do you think that that would have influenced the way that dick justice wrote more of their music or or do you think it would have still been the songs that you have or i'm just i'm curious like in terms of your crafting or Mm -hmm. or yeah that that's an interesting question i've 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 thought about that myself i think there is a craft there's some bands that are great at it doesn't even have to be a concept album but just crafting those songs that work well together in a form as an album Versus a, a single or, you know, a, an EP, something like that. I don't remember us thinking in, in those terms. We played live a lot. And, you know, we just, we just wanted to be out there playing. And we wrote a lot of songs. We probably should have spent more time recording those songs. Because <laughs> there, there are songs that the only record I have of them are live recordings. Fortunately, I did find, you know, talk, going back to the, the ADAT reference, I've been carrying around three ADAT tapes for 28 years. Huh. Thought that it was just a relic of the band. And because, yeah, I couldn't find any studio that still had a player. But I found one just within the last few months and was able to, even after 28 years, they were able to pull those tracks off and digitize them for me. So I've got them in a format where I, you know they could be flowed into a digital audio workspace. And we found, I think, six songs where we had done basic tracks, drums, bass, ah. one guitar. And, you know, it'd be great if we could all get together, you know, finish them up you know throw on the other guitars do the vocals and and have something and they all do work well together but they weren't originally constructed to it was just to fill out a set you know it wasn't yeah we weren't working necessarily towards an album i would say it was 
you know, we were a band that played some cover songs, but primarily wrote our own songs. And, you know, we, we just needed material to, for the show. I think in some ways there, there is even the approach of a good album should sound like, and have the same characteristics of a good set, right? Like it should have Mm -hmm. that same arc and, um, the songs that people get really psyched up for the songs that people get, you know, calm down mm-hmm. for, and you know, it should take you on that journey if it's if that's mm-hmm. your thing. I'm trying to think about it, recording and putting out music was so similar, but yet different in terms of really the way that people got to know you mm-hmm. was just seeing you live, and it wasn't yeah. like you could be like, "Hey, go to my band camp," <laughs> you know. And I think in some ways that's that's an improvement because I feel like that makes music local music even more accessible to those that may not be able to go out and see people live or Mm -hmm. have the capacity to watch live streams or anything like that i like to talk about what's my favorite part of the song and i kind of have a mix i mean i i really like the second verse because i feel like that kind of brings the story Mm -hmm. into into light but I'm, it's a mix of, I, I want to say, okay, maybe I'll make it three things, but I do love the introduction and how, like, literally the first few, I want to say that the first few phrases, you think it's going to be a song that sounds a certain way, and then that descending bass line kicks in after it, and then you're like, oh, and your mind wraps around it, and you're like, okay this is the groove and I, I, there's something cool about that but yeah so instead of me just saying my favorite thing i'm going to say the, the three favorite things it's that introduction the second verse that brings everything into light i did want to ask one thing as i'm into it is that after the line of i'm just another high-powered trotsky she said she said she said there's like a really heavy distortion and i'm just curious if if that it's it's just interesting to me like that decision to have it's like this uh, uh, like an extra overdub does it does that do i do you know what i'm talking about oh yeah yeah no i know exactly what you're talking about that's actually bob mold it's not a long enough clip to have to to credit him oh, okay <laughs> from from a sugar song that's where we used to you know sing the she said she said she said and then that made it into our song and when we were recording it we we learned that we could take that little snippet wow <laughs> and drop it in okay that's funny because i was yeah. like oh that's just it's a very strange uh, yeah, like, yeah yeah it it pops out when when yeah. i hear that but yeah so three things and now uh, now i'm like blanking on the third because that just blows my mind away that i i thought that that was i thought that was something that you added in Mm. and and uh, now i get it maybe i'll just go with those two as i i love the intro and that and that descending bass line and i don't know there's something very quintessential 90 that sound and even the delay on that guitar and it just it just takes me back and i love that so much and and then the second verse kind of brings it around so there's my two cheating choices <laughs> that i have but I, so i'm curious what your favorite part of this song is i love the song i have great memories of writing it with jim and galen i have great memories of recording it but probably my favorite is at the end 
when it's just noise and chaos. There are probably five or six people playing guitar at the same time. Like Galen's not a guitar player, but he's on there. Paul Camp was on there. I think Dan, the drummer from Busker, was on guitar. Jim's on guitar. I'm on guitar. We were all in different rooms in different amps. It was all done live, just creating this wall of noise. And we're in different keys and we're in different and somehow it all mixed up into this mess. And I just I have this very distinct memory of I think Jim and I were in the same room and I could see others down the hallway and it was so loud and we had no idea if it was going to work or not. And it did. And we did bring in a uh, there's a woman on the end of the track saying, can somebody get me some water? And it just keeps repeating that over and over again. That was a live show that we had done in Chicago and it was recorded on a boombox, and the person sitting at the table, I'm not even sure we knew who this person was, that was caught on the tape. She's <laughs> and we just we just sampled that and just kept repeating that nice. on Nice. Of course I have a big what is happening during this outro <laughs> in my notes. I'm very glad that you brought that mm-hmm. up. That's definitely one of those things that I wanted to ask and I'm sure that I would have been like, Oh, why didn't I ask? But I'm just imagining that the overall feeling of getting everybody to record this big outro. It's so interesting to me that Dick Justice seems like a band that is a mix of like wants to be taken seriously but also not be taken seriously (laughs) and then also having fun we don't care but to a certain extent there's also the yeah we obviously care about our craft so not that I would have had the opportunity but I regret that I didn't have the opportunity to see Dick Justice actually perform because I feel like that was your element being able to record some songs for an EP is not the same as being able to, to oh, sure. get out and perform and see things live. So I'm, I'm sad that I wasn't able to see that. But you're you're right. We took ourselves serious to the degree that we knew that we couldn't take ourselves too seriously. It was such a great time to be in Champagne and be a part of that music scene. We also understood that. The chemistry the three of us had was much stronger than anything any one of us could do. We also understood, if if anyone remembers any of our shows, there was some theatrical aspect, you know, we would wear the same outfits. There'd be, you know, exploding bags of paper on stage. You know, a couple times Galen doused himself in these big industrial jars of pudding. Things would happen that weren't necessarily planned, that it's like, oh, we've got stuff, we've got some props here and there, and things would happen, but it's like, we understood that, okay, we're not the best musicians in the world, but the three of us together created this wall of sound, and we weren't a band that was just going to stand there and play. There was activity on stage. Oftentimes, as I mentioned, you know, I would kind of hold down the melody and not playing a typical bass line. Uh, you know, while Jim's making noise. And sometimes if there was a break, Galen would leave the stage and be out in the crowd doing whatever. And we'd keep it going. And then he'd come back and kick back in. Uh, Word of mouth spread and people would come to see us just to see kind of what What's going to happen? We got asked not to come back to, there was a club called Trino's. And <laughs> it's now a bread company, I believe, in Urbana. Yeah, but um, yeah. 
but we accidentally set the stage on fire there and you know it happened nothing nobody got hurt fortunately and uh, we were told not to come back there we we did eventually make it back in there but (laughs) there was always something going on there but we understood that okay for what we can bring to the table it's got to be something more than just the performance just playing the songs and it was never anything planned all of a sudden things would be happening on stage and we all just kind of learned to kind of go with it i guess my you know final question for this section is why did you choose this song to talk about today i have such great memories of and it just it seemed like as it came together it was really the first time that the three of us had written a song together kind of getting a little more serious in how we approach things rather than me bringing a song or you know galen would bring in songs you know we would each bring in individual songs but they weren't connected but this was really the first time that i remember that the three of us in a room kind of just noodling about and spending that time to okay we've we've got it this is you know by the time we were done with that practice we had a full song Champagne is also a band podcast is proud to support Jubilee Cafe. Jubilee Cafe is a free weekly meal program at Community United Church of Christ, 805 South 6th Street in Champaign, Illinois. Jubilee Cafe serves a home-cooked meal from 5 to 6.30 each Monday. Their mission is to feed hungry people by cooking healthy, delicious meals and by serving their guests restaurant-style with servers waiting on tables. Jubilee Cafe is open to anyone who cares to eat with them. Because food insecurity among students is so high, they serve students as well as others in and around the Champaign-Urbana community who struggle with hunger. Meals are free to all and will be served each Monday evening, located in the accessible lower level of the building at 6th and Daniel Streets in Champaign. For more information on the meal or how to volunteer, Go to the Jubilee Cafe CUCC Facebook page or email them at jubilee.cafe at community-ucc.org. That's jubilee.cafe at community-ucc.org. Welcome back. So... Rob, do you have a favorite Champaign-Urbana venue? The Blind Pig was a wonderful place to play. Our goal was to play at Mabel's when we first started. And we, you know, when we got there, we played there many times, and that was great to play at Mabel's, just because a lot of our local heroes and national heroes had played there. We'd, we'd all seen wonderful shows there. But the Blind Pig felt like home. When it first opened, I think it opened in 91... It had a a different setup, and it held maybe 100 people, 125 people, something like that. And then they changed the setup. There was, a, I think, a barbershop next door that they moved into and expanded, and it kind of doubled the size. And there was still just a tremendous flow of bands that came through there in the early 90s. You know, I saw Jawbox there, Velocity Girl, Mineral, Afghan Wigs. So many great touring bands would come right. through there. And then the local bands were always there. And they had Dollar Pint Nights on Tuesday. So that was that was always a plus. Right. So what was the best show that you ever saw in Champaign-Urbana? Cheap Trick at Mabel's. You know, Mabel's held maybe six, seven hundred people. They were kind of at a low point in their career, but 
holy mackerel. I mean, you just can't get any better than Cheap Trick Live. Wow. <laughs> I've probably seen them 20 times since high school, and I've never seen a bad show. It's just they, hmm. they give their all, and Robin Zander is still probably the greatest front man out there, the greatest voice. What sticks out in your mind as your best performance? Yeah, I, I don't know if I could... I mean, I have great memories of playing with different bands. I have great memories of, like, great shows. For some reason, well, I mean, we, we would play a lot around the Midwest. We'd go down to St. Louis. We'd go up to Chicago. We'd go over into Indiana. We played a lot in Iowa. We played quite a bit in Davenport, and we always had a great show in the clubs over there. Iowa City, you know, did well in Iowa City. That was a fun one. We played with a band from iowa called tripmaster monkey and they were on sire records great guys great band and another band from st louis called bunny grunt and they were really good and i I remember that was a lot of fun that was that was a really good show for all three bands we would always do something to make it interesting i remember playing at mabel's one time with a band from chicago called material issue and they were on Mercury Records. They were touring on their second album, which had a Huffy Stingray bike you know, with the banana seat. It was uh-huh. on the cover. <laughs> this was one of the only times that I think we planned to do something. We all wore matching outfits, but Galen had one of those bikes, you know, one of those Stingray uh-huh. bikes. And so we brought it to Mabel's and set it up center stage and we lit it and we kind of played in the dark we were wearing day glow it was summertime it was hot day glow turtlenecks and we had these black lights kind of in floodlights so we kind of glowed in the background it was so hot you know back then there were no led lights so the stage lights were hot you know these floodlights are hot but the only lights that we really used were on the bike we thought the band would appreciate it the material issue would appreciate it, you know, that we're, we're honoring their album, we've got the bike, and then we took it a step further, and we did a medley of their songs. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Full and, stop. Yeah, long story short, they did not, they did not appreciate it as much as we, appre- we enjoyed playing it. But we we had a good time. It was a lot of fun. That, there are still people I've met. People were like, "I saw you guys, and you played behind a bike, <laughs> right? <laughs> you played that liner song." It seems like that could have been the end of it. I could see why this would be a very memorable moment. <laughs> yeah, it was. I think more so from the the mischievous side of what's what's going to happen when we get off stage type thing. And uh, it was all good. We all we you know it was it was not a problem. But we right. we. We had a ball. We made a memory. Is that the only one that sticks out in your mind? I mean, we played with a flock of seagulls in Charleston, Illinois. That was a really good show. That was a lot of fun. We also did a medley of their songs. <laughs> 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 now, now that I'm thinking about it, we we, we were kind of dicks. <laughs> but that was that was a good time. We had a, we had a, we had a really good time in Charleston playing with the Flock of Seagulls, and that was yeah. You know, we were all huge fans of, right, right, of right. the band, and we got to got to talk to Mike Score, the lead singer, and there was just so much fun that we had. You know, we'd play house parties, we'd play at Trinos in Urbana, Blind Pig, Mabel's, out of town, Phyllis's Musical Inn in Chicago. We played a lot up there. People would come out and 
see us, you know, Jim's high school friends and, and college friends mm-hmm. that had moved back to Chicago. And, and uh, we played in Bloomington quite a bit. And one really cool experience was in Muncie, Indiana. It was kind of a DIY thing. It was in an abandoned shoe store, like a, a, like a mini mall. Th- these guys had gotten access to put on a show and the stage was elevated. It was this really cool stage with like a runway and the whole bit. And it was this elevated runway. And it was a really cool venue. It's the only time we ever played there. But that always stood out. That's like, wow, that was that was fantastic. They truck in a PA and huh. put on shows every so often, once a month or whatever. And But they had this really cool space that, you know, there's yeah. still mannequins in there. And okay, it was... That's, yeah. that would, that would. <laughs> I mean, the, 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 yeah, just too many, too many horror movies that have <laughs> poor mannequin usage. Is there any plans for Dick Justice to do a, a reunion show or anything we, like that? Or we talk every so often. It would be great to do it. We played in 2008 with a bunch of other champagne bands. It was called 1993 Revisited. We played at uh, oh, shoot, what was the name of that place? It's closed now. Well, that could be any. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, high dive. They oh, yeah. High dive. But yeah, it was it was great. It was in May of 2008, and there was six bands that were all active in 1993, all of them reuniting. And we had Driver Has No Cash, which was one of my favorite bands of that era. It had Bob Rising, who had been in The Poster Children, and Seam, and he played a, a child-sized drum kit that was mic'd up to sound huge. This guy named Frank Gill on vocals, and then Bill Whitmer played an electrified ukulele and he would run all these effects and it would be this huge sound and they would do cover songs and they were just fantastic and it was so much fun and so we got them back together and then corn dolly played Mm. then us moon seven times honcho overload another favorite of mine and then mother who became menthol fantastic sets it was just so great to see everybody but yeah that was you know, 14 years ago, yeah. every so often we, we talk about it. It's like, yeah, we should do something. You know, this date is coming up. Maybe we should do something and we'll get all excited about it. And then something will come up and we won't do it. And it's kind of a never say never proposition. Do you make it back into Champaign-Urbana just to kind of see what's going on or? Oh yeah, I do. I do periodically. It's not, not as much as I would like. And then things have changed a lot since I lived there and, and growing up in Arcola, you know, Champagne was the mecca, you know, when I was young, because there was really not a whole lot in Arcola. So, right. you know, you'd go to the big city, you know, see a movie and, and Champagne or go out to eat or go to Marketplace Mall or, you know, go down into Campus Town. And I've just always loved music and bands. And I, I just I love the concept of a band and I love hearing about bands and seeing that. And and just, you know, like the, the local bands in Champagne were just I mean, those were heroes, you know, growing up, you know, it's like I can remember being in grade school and junior high and seeing the windows and record service and seeing, oh, the Elvis Brothers. Oh, and and uh, seeing the marquee on, at Mabel's of what bands are coming through. And, you know, there were such great bands, you know, my gosh, you know, Turning Curious and The Outnumbered and I've got the album. There was an album The Outnumbered put out and I bought it because i remember seeing it was called work by die it was a, a photo of a cinder block wall off of a uh, 
parking lot right on Green Street that someone had come through and just spray painted work by die and it was there it seemed like forever and we drive down green street going somewhere and it's like i'd always look for it and then they put it on the the cover of their album oh. it's like oh my gosh this, that's the champagne history right there this may be something an interesting question it may not but i'm i'm gonna go down this rabbit hole i just recently noticed that Dick Justice has returned and has shown up more in the socials. What started that? I, re- I had reached out to Jim and Galen. I had a bunch of, you know, demo tapes and live stuff. And and what started as, it's like, hey, you know what? We should put these out on the streaming services. Mm. You know, it's it's easy enough to do so. And they were like, yeah, let's do it. You know, it's like, go go right ahead. So I started doing that. And then we circled back and we were talking about it. And it's like, well, how are people going to know about this? And it's like, well, yeah, this is easy enough. Let's just, you know, start up a, some social media and we'll do Instagram and Facebook and roll, roll the content out. And it's, it's, you know, it's been fun. It's only been for a few months now. And I think it started earlier this year and it's, it's been, been good, you know, connected with a lot of folks and reconnected with a lot of folks. And yeah, I don't get back to champagne that much, but I do follow a lot of, champagne relevant channels and you know i've got a lot of friends who are still in the champagne area that are playing in one capacity or another and it's great that they're out there doing that and you know i like some of the new stuff that i'm hearing come out of champagne and i mean there's a band called emily the band that i'm i'm yeah yeah i i just i i just think they're great they've got a great energy and just you know i like what they're doing and they look yeah. like they're having a lot of fun and there's another metal band called era cobra i think they're called yeah, yeah. that uh, it's like oh my gosh those guys blow me away that's great i a while back i <laughs> i started a spreadsheet trying to log all of the names of the bands and mm-hmm. and at least it was a lot of work just to try to like <laughs> Because every time I was trying to keep it kind of alphabetized or keep them all in oh, like, sure. there's like all the A's, there's the B's and you know, you know what people do when they alphabetize things. <laughs> I don't know why I said it like that. Even from, you know, what we have now and even what was back then and even into the 70s, the 60s, mm-hmm. et, et cetera. I mean, there's, it's, it's massive. And I don't know if there's any other place in, I'm sure you know, there's a few, but I don't see very many places that are that unique that have such a wide yeah. breadth of genres, even, you know, like right. there's, there's no, I can't say like there's a champagne Urbana sound, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, I feel like that's the variety is the sound, you know, that there's always something original going on. And so, I don't know, I, th- I think that's just a really unique thing about Champaign-Urbana. That seems to have been the case. I mean, there are, there are bands, as far as I can remember, when I played here and when I was a fan before that, you know, had similar sounds, but there's always been an element of just that diversity within the sound. That's really what made, you know, my time in Champaign in the, the 90s just really magical it was such a great time because you could go out and you could see different bands and it was such a great community and there was such talent oh my gosh the talent was tremendous it was just amazing it was just such a great time to be here what to you makes a good music community or good music scene i mean i can only talk 
from what I know, which is good. Uh, most people should only talk from what they know. <laughs> right. When I look back at the music scene in the 90s, and I, I hope it's the same. I hope it's just, I hope this has prevailed through through the decades. But it wasn't only a music scene. What I think a lot of people might not realize is that the people that were in the bands and supporting the bands, we were really the infrastructure for Champaign-Urbana. We would support one another, sure, and go to each other's shows and hang out and whatever, but we were also painting your house. We were also selling you records, selling you books. We were making your food at the restaurants. We were serving the food. We provided that infrastructure for the overall community, and there were so many of us doing different things that then we would come together in the after hours and put on our own shows, you know, whether it's at a party or at a club. You know, there was some competition, you know, not everybody got along, but for the most part, it was a wonderful experience. And it was just kind of that shared mentality of, yeah, here, I do this during the day and at night we come together and, you know, this is how we spend our, our spare time. Champagne is also a band podcast is proud to support Exile on Main Street. Exile on Main Street, located in the old train station building at 100 North Chestnut Street in downtown Champaign, has been helping to build record collections since 2004, carrying a wide array of new and used LPs, CDs, and video games. Exile on Main Street has something for just about any music enthusiast and old school gaming devotee. Exile also hosts regular free live music shows on its stage, so be sure to check out their Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages for the up-to-date details on the next upcoming event. Open seven days a week. They can be reached by phone at 217-398-MAIN. That's 217-398-6246. Welcome back. So, Rob, what is your favorite non-musical thing or things? You think I would have an answer at the ready. Most of my life resolves around musical things. You know, I love guitars. I love bass guitars. I love shopping for vinyl. I love listening to music. I like to tinker with stuff. I would probably say... I spend a lot of time tearing things down and then rebuilding them and Mm. kind of trying to understand how they work, you know, from simple engines to more complicated things that, that works well for, you know, the guitars that I own as well. You know, it's like, all right, why take this into somebody else to set it up, you know, or to rewind a pickup or whatever. It's like, I can, I can do this. Yeah. I just need to figure out how, and you know, it's just a natural curiosity, I think. So, you know, I, I spend a lot of time. I've got uh, two kids that, you know, spend a lot of time, you know, 19 and a 17 year old. So as they're in that co- college age, high school, you know, it's like, I'm finding I have more time to myself now. You know, it's like you, you, right, right. you know, when they were younger, it's like, okay, yeah. If you would ask me a few years ago, it's like, oh, how do you spend your time? It's like, 
I'm a dad. <laughs> you know? Right. It's like that's that's where all the time goes. But you know, as they've gotten older, it's you know, kind of reclaiming that self. You know, that that kind of disappears yeah. for a while, and you know, kind of that curiosity comes back, and it's like, okay, great, yeah, this. This not only helps me with my my own interests, but you know, little repairs around the house, and hmm. and you know, can uh, always good to be curious. What what's the most complicated thing that you decided that you were going to go ahead and tear apart <laughs> and then try to repair and put back together? Oh, oh boy. It was actually a guitar. A friend sh- uh, sent me a guitar, a uh, Stratocaster that had, had found in a basement. Can anything be done with this? And mm. it was dirty and the, nothing on it worked. And I ripped it apart and mm. was able to, you know, bring it back to life without having to swap out anything. And oh. it took a long time and a lot of effort and it's still still functioning yeah so it was i was able to hand it back off to the to the owner and one of those you know pat myself on the back you fixed up a guitar it's just is it anything about the house or or do you actually seek out things like if you go to a garage sale are you are you like oh maybe i could fix this or there have been opportunity where that has happened Primarily not. With my house, it's like, okay, yeah, there are things that I'm now comfortable that I've learned through the years, you know, dealing with electrical, dealing with drywall, whatever. It's like, okay, oh, switch out a light fixture, no problem, you know, put in right. this, okay, no problem. The, the easy stuff. For the longest time, there was that obstacle of, if I really mess this up, this could be bad. Not only, mm. you know, for me, but for the house, you know, right. and, you know, kind of getting over that fear. And then it's like, you know what? anything can be fixed you know and it's like i'm I'm not so cavalier as to you know go into a home project like oh yeah anything can be fixed you know it's you know it's a little more regimented a little more dedicated a little more informed but you know like the the guitar i was talking about i can't do any worse you know (laughs) it's like that's like okay if i come out of this i'm just going to experiment on this thing and kind of learn on it if i can bring it back to life that's great if not it's no worse for wear. So it's like, right. okay, that was just licensed to go and play around. And- yeah. What are you going to do? Break it more? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, were, were there any, any heartbreakers, should I say? Like some, <laughs> some ones that, uh, there was a favorite turntable that I just hmm. fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> it was a belt driven turntable oh. and it was having some problems. And I thought it was going to be an easy fix and i tore it apart and it just never never came back and oh. it's it's one of those things where it's like oh i really miss that <laughs> right <laughs> oh so few things these days that can be repaired mm. in that way you know we barely even have a television repair place right. anymore you know and i mean like it's definitely become a different way of looking at at our resources and the things that we work with on a day-to-day basis. Anyway, again, mm. I step off my soapbox, but, um, so I guess Rob, thank you for being on the show and telling me about your song nine out of 10 and about some of the early years in, in Champaign Urbana. And I just appreciate you coming all the way out here. And, and I'm so glad that our schedules lined up so that we can make this happen. And, I just appreciate having you come out here and tell me all about it. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. This was 
This has been a lot of fun. I was really looking forward to this. Thank you for listening to Champagne is Also a Band podcast. This is Rob Errol of Dick Justice reminding you, great music is out there. Go find it where you live. you guys and you played behind a bike that's a wrap champagne is also a band you almost have an npr voice it's so good we thought the band would appreciate it